0: Welcome to Hispanic Marketing and Public Relations, HispanicNPR.com. This is Elena Delval and my guest is Amelia Geary, who is Director of Program Development and Quality at Orbis International. Today we will discuss the world's only flying hospital and Orbis. Amelia has worked in the international non-governmental organization sector for 15 years with a professional focus on program design, management and implementation. She obtained her master's degree in international affairs with a focus on infrastructure development from Columbia University. Her career has spanned across Africa, Asia and Latin America where she delivered programs in prevention of blindness, maternal, newborn and child health, water and sanitation, nutrition and training of medical professionals. Prior to joining Orbis, Amelia worked with several emergency and development organizations, including Action Against Hunger USA, United Nations Development Program, the World Bank Water and Sanitation Program, and Concern Worldwide. Amelia first joined Orbis in 2007 as a Flying Eye Hospital Program Manager. She later returned in 2014 to her current position. Amelia, welcome.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here.
0: Thank you. What are we referring to, first of all, before we, before we talk about the details of Orbis and its programs? What are we talking about when we say the world's only flying eye hospital? This is an airplane, right, where patients come to get health care for their eyes?
1: Uh, partially correct. Yes, it is an airplane. It's an MD-10, uh, which is a cargo plane that was converted to be a mobile teaching eye hospital. So while we do have patients coming and they're getting uh, sight-saving surgeries and other services on board the plane, the main cre- impetus for creating the Flying Eye Hospital was so that we'd be able to provide hands-on, high-level, quality medical education to eye care professionals in areas where they didn't have readily access to high-quality medical education.
0: So you're providing high-quality medical education and patient treatment aboard the plane?
1: That's correct. So the hospital has been designed to be a fully functioning uh, eye unit. So we have a operating suite that includes a operating room where surgeries can be performed we have a substerile section where we clean and prepare all of our instrumentation in a sterile zone we also have a recovery room and a patient pre and post operative room we have a patient waiting area uh, where, and also a screening area where we can do screening of our patients, examinations, and also a section of the plane where we perform laser therapy, which is needed for patients with, uh, different eye complications, but primarily glaucoma or diabetic retinopathy. And then, the other part of our airplane is a classroom. It's a classroom with 46 seats where we can have, obviously, 46 medical professionals who are able to watch live surgical demonstrations and also have interactive lectures, case discussion, video reviews, and ongoing um, continuing professional development for medical professionals.
0: Who is the target audience for the Flying Eye Hospital?
1: So that has evolved tremendously over the years. Uh, Primarily, Orbis was very focused on the surgeon, surgeon, but we have obviously realized that many people touch a patient's eye. And that includes even school teachers and parents all the way up to the surgeon. So now we focus on training eye care teams. So we will have medical education events and workshops and interactive lectures and discussions and hands-on training for ophthalmologists, ophthalmologists in training, ophthalmic nurses, anesthesiologists, because being able to provide local and general anesthesia, especially pediatric anesthesia, in a safe and competent manner is very the patient care. We train biomedical engineers and technicians so that they can actually take care of the equipment and the instruments that are necessary to provide high quality eye care. And then we will even train uh, primary care workers so that they can perform primary eye care. We've trained school teachers on how to do school uh, eye screening, visual acuity testing. So it is really looking at the entire eye care team and making sure that have access to high-quality education, which would translate into high-quality services for a patient who's suffering from visual impairment or blindness.
0: Does this include the United States? I mean, there are many people in the United States who are lacking access to health care even today, and I imagine that must include eye care.
1: So we primarily focus on low- and middle-income countries. That's where our Flying Eye Hospital would go and actually deliver these training and treatment programs. However, part of our expansion as an organization is we've created a tele-education, telemedicine platform called CyberSight. It's CyberSight.org. And through CyberSight.org, it's an open-source platform where we offer Expert e consultation and mentorship services for eye care professionals, as well as ongoing uh, access to online courses, distance learning, live webinars, live case discussions, and that's open to all, including people within the United States. Uh, also, we have been very lucky. You know, the backbone of our organization is dependent on volunteer faculty, so experts in eye health who give their time to Orbit to deliver these training and treatment programs and uh, we have over 400 volunteers that work with us and there's a huge majority of those coming from the United States supporting our efforts.
0: Which low and middle income countries specifically are you focusing on because that's a pretty large market segment. Would you tell us a little bit more about that?
1: Sure. So. Orbis has expanded beyond the Flying Eye Hospital, where we have ongoing multi-year projects in 16 countries, and those countries are throughout Latin America, Asia, and Africa. Uh, I could list all the countries, but uh, some of the bigger markets where we work are: we're in India, we're in China, we're in Vietnam, Bangladesh, Mongolia, Indonesia. So quite a big footprint in in Asia, as well as in Africa. We have offices in South Africa and Ethiopia, and we deliver ongoing projects in Zambia, Cameroon, Ghana, uh, throughout East Africa. We have a human resource for eye health initiative. And then here in Latin America, I say here because that's where I am, uh, we have projects in Peru, in Bolivia, in Guyana, we have regional initiatives with the Pan American Health Organization, where we address eye health across the across the continent, um, and we do ongoing activities with the International Agency for the Prevention of Blindness in Latin America. So we have a pretty extensive footprint, uh, but even more so with our CyberSight platform, which I mentioned earlier, and our Flying Eye Hospital, we broadcast live from the Flying Eye Hospital via our site platform so that if the Flying Eye Hospital happens to be delivering a project or a training event in Peru, actually it's being attended through broadcast by 125 other countries. So we try to have as an exhaustive footprint as we possibly can because the need for high quality education that translates into good quality eye care services for Population in LMICs is pretty much everywhere, so we try to get everywhere if we can. So, through, you know, a com- combining our on-the-ground projects with our tele-education platform and being able to broadcast those projects live, we're typically reaching about 125 countries in a year.
0: How many patients does that translate to?
1: Across all of our programmatic activity. Tens of thousands. I would have to. to, I I wouldn't have the exact number for the entire organization. Here in Latin America, we have six ongoing projects, and those projects are each reaching anywhere between three and five thousand patients per annum. So we're reaching, you know, about thirty thousand patients, whether that's through a screening or through education or, or through access to one of our, our webinar series or through surgical intervention, a combination.
0: How many staff and, I imagine, perhaps volunteers are involved with your organization?
1: So staff, we have about 200 staff globally. Uh, as I said, we're in many different countries, so we have programmatic staff and experts And technical experts across those countries and then we also have what is a very important part of our work we have uh, offices that look to raise funding and support for the work that we're doing so we have about 200 staff and uh, in terms of volunteers we're looking at a pool of about 400 volunteers and these volunteers come from 29 different countries They are experts in their field. They represent that entire eye care team that I mentioned earlier. We have nurses. We have doctors. We have residents. uh, We have biomedical engineers, anesthesiologists. We have ophthalmic technicians. We have people who are experts in public awareness or primary eye care. uh, And together they support our team in being able to deliver this high-quality education.
0: What? is the source of your volunteers how do you find them how do you reach out to them is it mostly medical personnel the, the folks that make part of your eye care teams
1: yes so the majority of our volunteers are people with medical backgrounds uh, we, we find each other, i like to say. You know, there's a number of academic conferences and academic communities within iHealth that we participate in so that we can promote uh, the work of Orbis and ask for those volunteers and ask for those opportunities. But, you know, good work breeds good work, so when a volunteer comes and has an amazing experience and sees the impact that they can have, on a person's life by volunteering with Orbis and seeing, you know, that through their work, they're giving people the gift of sight. They go back and they tell their colleagues and they do a lot of promotion for us and that drives even more people to the organization. So we we kind of find each other a little bit by us being proactive at these key academic conferences, Uh, not just here in the States. Like I said, we're from 29 countries. So we have... People coming from Argentina, from Chile, from Brazil, from Colombia. We have people from India, Nepal, uh, participating Singapore, you know, all through Europe. So we, we proactively seek them out and then they sort of go back and they become our ambassadors and really promote the work and their colleagues tend to then reach out and participate in Orbis as well. So we have a, we have a great community of really experts in the fields who are giving their time and energy to come out and support this incredibly impactful work that we're doing and just affecting people's lives on the ground.
0: Who are the recipients of the care? So not the ones that are learning on the, from the telemedicine courses and not the volunteers, but the patients who are receiving the eye care. Tell us a little bit about them.
1: So Orbis, the way we work is we work through a network of partners. And with those partners, our goal is to train and inspire those local eye care professionals to provide um, site-saving services in their own communities. So these are typically communities where the majority of the population are of low resourced they have difficult difficulties affording surgery, they're unaware of positive health seeking behavior. They are struggling just to meet their sort of daily needs, let alone being able to provide uh, extra funding for eye care services. So we want to make sure, that they have services that are affordable, available, and accessible in their communities. And the only way to do that is obviously to build services that are that have a, a cost sustainability within them so that they can provide those services at those levels. So we're typically looking for populations that are chronically underserved and have a hard time accessing high-quality services. So we're looking for vulnerable, the most vulnerable population. Those are our primary, that's our primary target for uh, eye health services. We also have a real commitment to children at our organization. Uh, there's a lot of organizations that deal with eye health in adults, uh, but we have a large commitment to making sure we meet pediatric eye care services. So we do a lot of training, education, and provision of services for children under 16, and especially children under five, because having timely access to eye health services is, makes a difference between a child uh, having a severe disability for the rest of their life, and then or having healthy, uh, healthy vision and access to all that that brings. Like. The education, the ability to see the keyboard, social inclusion, uh, better access, you know, education leads to, you know, poverty reduction and better job opportunities. So we really have a a large focus on helping those uh, that are going to spend the most amount of time blind, so the younger population. So the poor and the vulnerable and the young, (laughs) I would say, is our key target group. But obviously, we think that access to eye health is a right. So we wouldn't want to deny that to any uh, patient population, so we try to have as large a footprint as we can.
0: What are the main issues that you see among these populations, the poor, the vulnerable, and the young?
1: So typically, globally, cataract, blindness due to cataract is the number one cause of avoidable blindness, and that remains the case today, even though a cataract surgery can be done in under 10 minutes and has been dubbed by the World Health Organization as one of the most cost-effective interventions in medicine. We still see a huge portion of the population not able to access cataract services. So for example, I in Peru where I work, about 60% of blindness is due to cataract blindness, is, is due to cataract. So Cataract remains a huge issue and a great need globally. And then there are some emerging eye diseases that are specifically prone in middle-income countries. So in Latin America, we see a lot of retinopathy of prematurity, which is an eye disease that that affects premature infants. And, you know, with the increasing survival rate amongst infants in middle-income countries, they're more at risk for this blinding disease and actually ROP is the number one cause of childhood blindness in Peru at the moment. Uh, Diabetes, obviously, is also a global emerging disease and there are complications related to diabetes that affect the vision as well and primarily diabetic retinopathy, which again is increasing rapidly with the rise of diabetes. So being able to have the education and technology that allows us to treat those emerging eye diseases is also a critical need. And then there are diseases that have an affecting population and affects certain populations more so than others. So glaucoma is also a is a large cause of blindness, avoidable blindness. It needs to be prevented. If it if people present too late, it can't be reversed. So we try to do early intervention with glaucoma, a lot of public awareness, and make sure people can identify and treat that early. And populations of African descent are more at risk of, of glaucoma than popu, you know, Caucasian populations, for example. So you see a high uh, percentage of glaucoma in the Caribbean and Africa. So we focus quite heavily on that disease in those locations. You also see uh, high... Uh, level of glaucoma in Chinese populations, so we focus very heavily on glaucoma in China. So there are the diseases that are affecting globally, and then where a disease happens to be more prevalent in a specific geographic area, or just make sure that we have a strategy to focus on those emerging eye diseases and present eye diseases.
0: I read somewhere that there are parts of the world where people are losing their vision and eventually, not in a very long time period, dying from a lack of vitamin A. Are you seeing evidence of that?
1: Yes. So vitamin A deficiency is one of the causes of visual impairment and blindness, It is specifically in countries where nutrition and access to good nutrition is not available. So we see that in populations in India. We see that in populations on the Africa continent. So while that's not universal, you wouldn't see vitamin A deficiency necessarily leading to visual impairment or blindness here in the U.S. or in most parts of Latin America, that still is an emerging issue, and several eye organizations do focus on nutrition as a means for prevention.
0: What kinds of numbers in terms of the ones that you mentioned, so you you talked about cataracts as an issue, retinopathy, is specifically for premature babies, if I understood correctly, diabetes, and glaucoma. How would you break that down in terms of percentage? Would you say that cataract is 90% of the cases? What, what would you say for those?
1: Well, let me give you some global numbers, and then we and then break it down. Uh, basically. We estimate there's about 36 million people who are blind globally, but there's 217 million people who have a severe or moderate visual impairment. So the population that is really suffering from some form of uh, visual impairment or blindness that needs intervention is about 253 million people globally. So it, it's quite large, and about 89% of those visually impaired people live in low- and middle-income countries, which is why Orbis focuses on those low- and middle-income countries. And there's also a prevalence towards women suffering more than men with visual impairments. So about 55% of those, that 253 million, are women. Uh, so there's a greater need amongst uh, a female population cataract is still the like as i mentioned the number one cause of avoidable blindness i i don't have the global statistics of how that breaks down i'll be honest but in my region in latin america for example we have about 29.6 million diabetics and one out of 10 of those diabetics is going to develop some form of diabetic retinopathy and also, 41% of childhood blindness in Latin America is due to ROP. And we have about 12.4 million people who are suffering from visual impairment. So the numbers are large. You know, this is, this is a huge community of people that, that have need for eye care and sight-saving surgery and sight-saving intervention.
0: You mentioned that cataract was easily addressed in I assume most cases, with a very brief surgery. Correct. I got the impression that retinopathy and diseases resulting from diabetes could also be treated. Is that mostly correct?
1: Absolutely. So both of those are are conditions that can be treated and with proven, proven interventions. Uh, for cataract surgery, uh, it is basically there is a simple in, uh, surgical intervention that removes, you know, what cataract is is a clouding of the lens. So we simply make a small incision, remove the uh, cloud, the cloudy lens, and we replace it with an artificial lens or an intraocular lens that substitutes what your natural lens would do. You know, and the procedure, as I said, takes under 10 minutes on average and is incredibly cost-effective. For diabetic retinopathy, there are a few different treatments available. Uh, There is laser therapy. So that is a – it's exactly what it sounds like. There is a laser machine that basically – will treat the affected part of the back of the eye and ensure that there isn't vision loss. Uh, sometimes the treatment has to be repeated. There's also a, a medicinal treatment plan using intraocular injections, which provide medicine that, that simulates the same treatment towards the back, the back of the eye. So these treatments are available and they are effective. And so what Orbis' mission is is to make sure that eye health facilities have staff that are adequately trained to be able to deliver those treatments and support, you know, health system strengthening so that supplies and consumables are available for them to be able to deliver those services. And we also work with communities to raise their awareness Um, You know, site-saving interventions and make sure that they have positive health-seeking behaviors and they go to a doctor to get these readily available interventions when they need it and that that all works together through our local partners being well-equipped and able to deliver quality eye care.
0: What about glaucoma? I thought, uh, apparently mistakenly, that there was no not much that you could do if you were diagnosed with glaucoma.
1: Uh, no, so they, glaucoma is is definitely treatable. Uh, so we at Orbis say that we work to in the you know we work to transform lives through the prevention and treatment of avoidable blindness. And what that means is that there's two ways you can avoid blindness. You can prevent it. And that, you know, speaks to what we were talking about, uh, vitamin A deficiency. That's one way to prevent, you know, uh, blindness, by making sure someone is not vitamin A deficient. Or we can treat it, like in the case of cataract that I just mentioned, where a simple, cost-effective procedure can reverse that and give people their vision back. So glaucoma falls in the prevention side. So with adequate treatment, you can make sure you control your glaucoma so it does not lead to vision loss so there again there are different tracks there is uh, medicinal treatment so through the use of eye drops uh, you can control your glaucoma and make sure it doesn't worsen there are surgical interventions for glaucoma that has uh, advanced and needs uh, a more robust intervention. And there's a number of different types of surgical interventions that a glaucoma specialist would do. And then there is also laser treatment for glaucoma as well. And which is appropriate is really dependent on the surgeon and and the glaucoma when it's presented and the patient and the risk factors. Uh, but again, that's an area where Orbis would be working heavily to make sure we train surgical teams so that they're able to assess, diagnose and treat glaucoma and be able to provide those different forms of treatment depending on what a patient would need. So I, I think basically overall, The access to high quality eye care, it exists. You know, those interventions exist that allow the majority of eye diseases that are out there. So about 80% of that 250 million, 53 million that I mentioned were able to either prevent or treat their eye conditions. So what Orbis needs to do, what our mission is that we make sure that our partners have those and that ability and work within an institution that is well-resourced so that they can stay sites in their community, so that they can target that 80% of the population through these treatments that are known to work and be effective.
0: What is your source of funding at Orbis
1: so we are very lucky to have a whole variety of funders we have public funding so those are governments and foundations that see recognize the quality of our business work and, and and are willing to fund us in doing in doing such work we also have corporate funders so we have a lot of private sector businesses and enterprises that support the work that we do some of our biggest donors are Federal Express, Alcon, Omega, uh, UTC Aerospace. So they, recognizing the importance of what they, we do through their corporate social responsibility, have been funding our work as well. And we also, most importantly probably, is we have a lot of individuals. You know, individuals who give anywhere between $5 to a $1 million to support the efforts of Orbis International. And... It's amazing that, you know, 100 people giving $10 a month make a huge impact on what we're able to do. So we are funded by a variety of different actors, enterprises, and individuals who see the importance of fighting for, for access to, to quality eye care.
0: So would you say that most of your funding is private funding as opposed to government funding?
1: I would say it's a it's a fairly balanced mix, but we do have quite a significant uh, portion of our funding coming from private, and we would not be able to do what we are able to do on an annual basis without that support and without that funding. It is it's a critical component of our funding.
0: What's your annual budget for the organization?
1: So the annual budget for the organization is about $60 million. Uh, and then in addition to that, we have Gifting and Kind. And Gifting Kind is a, n- a number of different things. We get a lot of our consumables, our medical supplies and medicine at Gifting Kind through some of these uh, excellent corporate sponsors that I've mentioned earlier. We also get a lot of support for our Flying Eye Hospital through Federal Express, things like maintenance checks and parking and, and fuel. Uh, those things will come through different uh, support through the aviation industry. So with that, you know, if you add the gift in kind, the organization's budget is, uh, I think, about $200 million, But we're about $60 million cash budget.
0: Where are you based? In what country?
1: So I'm based in Lima, Peru. I, uh, part of my portfolio is I manage the projects that are in Latin America and the Caribbean, but I also manage training and innovation for the organization as a whole. So that uh, brings me to most of the countries where we work that I mentioned earlier. So I spend a significant portion of my time traveling to Asia and Africa and working with our teams on the ground, as well as our partners uh, to design and execute these uh, amazing eye eye education programs that we have, medical education programs. So, But based here – in Lima, Lima, Peru.
0: Where is Orbis? Where does Orbis have its headquarter offices? Are they in Lima?
1: Our headquarter office is in New York, New York. Uh, We, you know, Orbis has been around for about 35 years, and I believe that for the majority of the time, our headquarter office was based in New York City. You know, we really, we started uh, with a visionary ophthalmologist who really saw that the answer To fighting avoidable blindness was to make sure that eye care services were available in all the places where people who are suffering from some form of blind, a visual impairment or blindness were living. So he happened to have ties to the aviation industry, in this case Pan Am, and working with his close friends, they, they came up with this amazing innovative idea to create the world's only flying eye hospital and started this Mission of transforming people's lives through sight-saving, uh, you know, medical care and bringing those services to the population. So they opened the office in New York and they started running the Flying Eye Hospital. And then we have obviously in 35 years we evolved to create permanent on-the-ground offices in many of the countries I've already mentioned and to have. Uh, ongoing multi year projects in these, in these many countries where the Flying Eye Hospital now goes and supports partners that are part of these ongoing interventions, ongoing projects in, in, the, in the different countries that I, that I mentioned before. So, uh, yeah, so we have this main office in New York, but we've really grown into a network of Orbis offices and branches all committed to being able to, you know, emulate What was that vision 35 years ago in the creation of the Flying Eye Hospital by teaching and training and delivering high-quality eye care in many different locations?
0: The world has changed in some dramatic ways in the 35 years since Orbis was established. In the last few years, perhaps, In the last decade, those changes or the speed of those changes has accelerated. Are you benefiting from the new technologies that we have seen come about, such as, of course, computers and mobile technology and connectivity, social media? What, if anything, are you seeing in relation to your organization and these changes?
1: Elena, I'm so glad you asked that question because now you're giving me my opportunity to be geeky for a minute. Um, So this is very much what I do at the organization. As I mentioned, I do training and innovation. And uh, one of the things that I love about working for Orbis International is that I think personally they have been a pioneer in innovation when it comes to education uh, for the ophthalmic community. So obviously the world's only flying eye hospital is an innovation in and of itself. This ability to, you know, move a teaching hospital to different locations was was pioneering 35 years ago. But orbits didn't stop there. So some of the innovations that we've done is, you know, I've mentioned our cybersight platform. So our cybersight platform has been around for a long time, but we took advantage of the fact that technology is changing, and it's changing rapidly. And one of the most important trends in technology is the access to smartphones and smartphone technology, you know, that there's almost 3 billion smartphone users out there now. And if you look at some of these markets, almost 50% of websites are actually viewed through a smartphone. So we couldn't ignore that trend in delivering education. So we completely re uh and relaunched our cybersight platform about two years ago and created a mobile agnostic and responsive learning management system so that all of our educational resources could be delivered in the palm of someone's hand. So I had a colleague attend a live webinar sitting on the floor of a dirt hut in rural Ethiopia. And I actually you know engaged in another online course while I was in the hallway of a operating theater suite in Guyana. So we have made sure that we have tried to keep pace with the improvements in technology and the improvements in access to online education and especially the popularity and the demand for being able to get content through a smartphone. So we've completely upgraded our our platforms to do that. Also, as I said... You know, the Flying Air Hospital offers an amazing and intense opportunity for high quality education, but it's still limited to 46 people because that's how many seats we have on the plane. But now we don't have those limitations because technology doesn't limit anything to a geographic location. Everything can be broadcast and accessed through you know, 3G, 2G connections or or Wi-Fi connections. So we broadcast all of the educational events that are happening on a Flying High Hospital project. And through that, we're able to reach, you know, 125 additional countries at any given time. And lastly, one of the major new technology trends that we're embracing is simulation, so we uh, obviously have been influenced by the aviation industry since the start of our organization, and they are pioneers in simulation. That is how pilots are trained. They are trained through a simulator. They mimic countless, countless hours of actual flying, and they produce high-quality pilots using simulation. So taking a, a note from their playbook, We actually have embraced simulation in the last few years as an organization as well. Um, We know that the highest complication rates for a surgeon happen in the first 60 to 80 cases that they perform. And there's evidence that shows simulation brings down those complications and essentially what we do is we use the latest in medical technology, which is a combination of virtual reality, uh, artificial or model eyes, um, case scenarios, role play, all in a simulated surgical environment that allows our learners to do repetitive steps and master skill sets. All using a model eye as the learning curve so that when they go and do their first 60 to 80 cases they're already incredibly competent surgeons and the patient doesn't end up being the learning curve instead we use these model eyes to be the learning curve so we have now launched mobile simulation training on board our flying eye hospital we did it for the first time this year in Peru in April and we had a second uh, simulation training for the the Caribbean region based in Barbados uh, just last month. So it's an incredibly exciting time because technology has imploded and the possibilities for delivering education in a safe way has also improved dramatically. And Orbis is really keeping trend and making sure that we embrace those technological innovations and we adopt them into the work that we do.
0: What are the greatest challenges? Obviously, your embracing technology has brought you tremendous advantages. What are the greatest challenges that you face in relation to this technology? I imagine, for example, that in remote locations, the connectivity might be spotty. Maybe it drops. Um, Maybe that's not the issue. What are your challenges?
1: So just like with any innovation trend or technological trend it's important to to keep pace. So what we're seeing is that this remote place that doesn't have access to internet the internet is slowly but surely disappearing. So we slowly but surely transition along with those trends. We monitor those trends and you know we still deliver in person hands-on training for those locations that aren't able to really embrace the online live education training that we're being able to offer, Um, but we are transitioning more and more into an ongoing program of medical education. And the reason that's beneficial is because ultimately that's what impacts the patient so a patient who has a doctor that constantly is able to have access to learning and an improvement in their in their skills as a as a surgeon or or as a nurse or as an anesthesi- or as a anesthesiologist or as a biomedical engineer is going to make is going to have better and better quality of service um, so while it's still a challenge to have internet connectivity in some places and we continue to monitor that and uh, that is disappearing. It's disappearing quickly. Like I said, my we have people able to join us from rural Ethiopia, sitting in a in a grass hut. Um, the other challenge is, I'm sure many of your other clients face this challenge that you know getting people to adopt new technology. It often takes some convincing. Uh, so with simulation training. You know, I think a lot of people believe that simulation training cannot be high fidelity enough to actually uh, simulate what someone will have in the OR, but we're proving them wrong. And every time we deliver a simulation training, the reception is beyond our wildest expectations, and it's very quickly you're able to convert someone who didn't necessarily believe that a simulation would be high-fidelity enough to really build those skill sets and make them a competent, ophthalmic professional, and once they're exposed and they see how impactful and effective it is, they become converts as well. So I think we have the same challenges that any technology organization would have in terms of we... There are still locations that can't embrace all the technological innovations we have, and we have to have a substitute for those locations um and also convincing people that something new is not necessarily bad. You know, a lot of people are late adapters and don't want to don't want to embrace change. But to be honest, the products are so good and so effective, and the evidence is there to support that they're impactful that it doesn't take much to to convert people, <laughs> to make them believers in technology. So we're it's a we're very excited that we are at a time in 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 technology in the world where we can really use that to have such a bigger impact on patients at a global level than we would have been able to have 20 years ago, you know. I mean, we're in 16 countries. We help a lot of people through our hands-on, on-the-ground projects. But there are, you know, 270-plus countries in the world. And the only way to reach them and to make sure that everyone has an opportunity to have site-saving intervention is through embracing technology.
0: What about places that are in a state of crisis, uh, such as, for example, Yemen or at the moment the Democratic Republic of Congo, which has an Ebola outbreak, are you able to provide any kind of access in those areas, or do you concentrate mostly on those 16 countries that you mentioned earlier?
1: So one of the
0: most rewarding uh, changes
1: via technology for me personally, but I would say for many of my colleagues that Orbis has been, that CyberSight has given us a platform to provide education and patient care to places such as Yemen, Afghanistan, Somalia, Democratic Republic of Congo, which we didn't have uh, 10 years ago, you know. so. For example, we have many, um, we have ongoing live teaching events that we deliver through distance learning. Some of these are focused on surgical skill training. Some of these are focused on knowledge and theories. Some of them are focused on patient care. And we have participants from all of those countries I just mentioned regularly joining our live education events and being able to access this ongoing medical education And that was something we didn't have to offer them 10 years ago. Um, For the Democratic Republic of Congo, we have a network of teaching hospitals that want to improve their ability to train the next-generation ophthalmologists. They're ophthalmologists in training. And we're partnering with the International Council of Ophthalmology, and we're delivering a faculty development webinar series. And we're introducing them to Cybersite. We've helped them develop curriculum curricula that they can use to train their own residents and the next generation, and we're able to do that through our site platform. We're able to have ongoing live interactions with professionals in war-torn areas, in remote areas, in hard-to-reach areas, in a way that we were never able to have before. So it's incredibly rewarding Um, I've been with the organization on and off since 2007. And as you mentioned in my bio, I've been working in development for 20 years and there is nothing more crushing than when someone asks you for help and you tell them you can't, you can't give it to them, whether it's because you don't have the funding or you don't have projects in that area, or it's outside the scope of your, your organization's mandate. And with CyberSight, I don't, I don't have to say that anymore. There's always some kind of educational event or tailored training initiative that we can design for someone regardless of where they are. And it's incredibly rewarding to not have to turn people away.
0: That's one of the side effects of this new technological capability and enhancements that we've been discussing then.
1: Absolutely. That Absolutely. The fact that people have... The ability to access the internet, whether that's through a 2G, a 3G, or a Wi-Fi or a you know, broadband connection, has allowed us to be able to deliver training and care in a way that we couldn't before. And you know, Cybersight doesn't just do training, we have a, a an e-consultation service where eye care professionals anywhere in the world who need help with a patient case. Can be connected directly with a mentor uh, from our volunteer faculty pool of over 400 experts and get, you know, real time, real time responsiveness on how they can care for this patient. So it is a way to not only access medical education but patient care through through a telemedicine teleeducation platform.
0: We know that one of the most popular search categories online is healthcare. So we know that in addition to healthcare professionals seeking information and knowledge and experience, as you've described, there are a lot of people who are searching for themselves and taking courses in places, for example, such as Coursera, the famous MOOCs uh, that we talk about. Are any of these capabilities, any of these courses, is there any kind of healthcare information, of course, eye healthcare information, from your organization available to regular people, to our listeners who want to know more, for example, about the eye diseases or conditions that we've discussed earlier in our conversation?
1: Absolutely. So CyberSight has three sections or three products that are accessible. One of those is the e-consultation that I just mentioned, which allows medical professionals to be connected to experts in their field and get patient consultation and advice. That is obviously only available to medical professionals. Uh, But the other two parts of CyberSight, which is our library, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's a collection of high-quality resources, a mix of video, textbooks, manuals, guidelines, um, and our CyberSight Learn, which are these online courses in a variety of different areas, are available and open source, similar to Coursera MOOCs that you mentioned so those are, we have a CyberSight community of over 12,000 members, and we regularly promote and distribute new content. And, you know, we're always looking to grow our membership, So those are available and accessible.
0: How can our listeners find those, Amelia? Is there a website address or a particular tab on the site website?
1: So if you go to CyberSight.org, so that's C-Y-B-E-R-S-I-G-H-T dot O-R-G. Uh, when you come to the main landing page, you will see in the top menu bar those different um, products that I mentioned, courses, library, consultation. They're all available. It's very user-friendly, very navigable. Like I mentioned before, it's mobile responsive, so you can use your phone, you can use your tablet, you can use your laptop or desktop, it you know, regardless of how you like to access the online content. And it works with 3G connection very well, but also in many places I've I've used a 2G connection and haven't had trouble connecting to that content. So just cybersite.org and all the products are there on the homepage.
0: In relation to all of these technological advances and there of course are many advantages. There has also been a lot of controversy regarding the side effects of the devices themselves, specifically blue light and its effect on sleep and concentration, not to mention the psychological effects. Are you seeing these effects in the field? Are you seeing people who spend all their days in front of a computer or a mobile device affecting their vision?
1: So I would say that our learner pool, uh, as I mentioned before, are mainly eye care professionals. Um, So they aren't people that are spending all their day in front of a, a computer or a mobile device. They spend a significant portion of their day doing, you know, hands-on care for for patient populations. So we haven't seen that be an issue with our particular learner pool. I mean, there are concerns more globally, as you mentioned, you know, for example, um, school children who have very long days and stay inside, as part of their school days and then go home and play video games and things like this and don't spend as much time outside in the sunlight and, and getting natural light, then, you know, that is one of the reasons why we see this increase in refractive error in certain populations. So that, that is a concern on a global scale, but particularly with our learner population who spends the majority of their day in, in hospitals, in, in the clinics, in the OR, in the community Um, This hasn't been been a concern. It hasn't been a negative consequence of our training to date.
0: For our listeners who are in their respective business environments, for-profit, non-profit, academia, who would like to support your efforts, is there a way for regular people to volunteer their help, perhaps in development or perhaps through some sort of sponsorship, what would you say to them if they want to learn more about your organization and ways that, that they might support it and or become involved?
1: I mean, absolutely. I mean, first of all, I just want to caveat that we're all regular people too. So we welcome the support of everyone who is as passionate as we are about, about this cause. First, I would recommend that they go to our website, which is www.orbis.org. On our website, there is indications of a variety of ways that you can get involved, that you can volunteer, that you can support the organization financially, um, different events and opportunities that come up that you know you may want to participate in. We do. Things here in the United States, of course, and throughout the countries where we work, and sometimes uh, there are runs or, or walks or, or different different activities that support the organization. There, um, so that's all available on our website at orbits.org. Um, and then uh, there's also on our website there's contact information for how you can get in touch with our communications or our development team so you can see how you can get more involved with the organization and support the work.
0: Well, managing volunteers can be a lot of work, and it's important to match the volunteer with the tasks that the organization needs. Are there particular needs in terms of abilities or contacts that you are looking for, their particular characteristics or needs that your organization has, either by geographic location or by need or both?
1: Well, I would say first and foremost, what we're looking for in a volunteer is a commitment to the mission and really being driven by the desire to make a difference in a person's life by making sure they have access to services. That allow them to lead happy and healthy lives. Um, in terms of um, backgrounds or uh, professional backgrounds, we are always looking for people in the primary areas in which we train. So biomedical engineering, there's a strong need for uh, biomedical engineers who want to get involved to help train in repair and troubleshooting of ophthalmic and emergency equipment. Uh, we always are looking for ophthalmic nurses, and those can be nurses that work in any area of ophthalmology, but um, particularly scrub nurses are, are well needed. Uh, we look for ophthalmologists who specialize in the variety of eye diseases I've already mentioned. Uh, we look for allied health professionals who would like to be involved, ophthalmic technicians. Uh, we have increasingly work with uh in Allied Health, so anyone with an eye care background, we typically will have some some need for, but particularly biomedical engineers. Um, if you're out there and you're looking to do some volunteer work, we we would love to have you on board. Um, we take people who work in in other areas as well. Uh, we love people who have a tech background who are really interested in volunteering and supporting us to grow even more in innovation and technology, we'd be interested in hearing from you as well. And the cyber is a huge part of our work, and we would welcome technical expertise and volunteership in those areas as well.
0: What suggestions, what tips would you share with our listeners who want to learn more about eye Care? who want to have a proactive approach toward their eye care, their eye health care, as they and their loved ones grow, whether they're having babies or whether they have aging parents or for themselves. What sources would you share or what suggestions would you share to help them get started? Uh,
1: So, uh, obviously, I've already mentioned our website, www.orbis.org. I think we're a great resource. Um, Some other sources here in the United States that I would recommend are the American Academy of Ophthalmology, the National Eye Institute, and um, those both are great resources for learning more information on eye health prevention and need. And finally, the International Agency for the Prevention of Blindness, IAPB.org, also has a lot of information uh, on eye health uh, at a global level and what are the needs and and, and how we can can directly deal with the um, prevention and treatment of avoidable blindness. So those are all great resources for someone who wants to educate themselves more about the issue at a global level and then also just have more information about good health-seeking behaviors for themselves and their families.
0: One thing we haven't discussed, and for a while it was on the news everywhere, and now it seems to have sort of kind of gone into the background. Zika, I remember reading articles that talked about Zika and blindness, is there anything you can tell us about that for those people who are concerned that they've been bitten and have Zika and they don't know it, or those people who have Zika and are pregnant?
1: So there there has been some initial evidence that links Zika to to complications, in, to eye complications or eye diseases. But the evidence is, is fairly initial, and I don't think I would be comfortable making any strong statements around it.
0: Thank you, Amelia, for joining us from Lima, Peru.
1: Thank you for having me. It was really exciting to talk to you and talk to your audience a little bit more about what we do, and I hope it inspires a few people to maybe go get an their annual eye check or find out a little bit more about the issue at a global level.
0: And to our audience, thank you for listening to Amelia Gary, who is director of program development and quality at Orbis International, who discussed Orbis, eye healthcare and the world's only flying eye hospital. Please share your suggestions, questions, and ideas by leaving a comment on the com website. If you or someone you know would like to be on the show, you can email me directly at editor at com. That's editor at com.